0: Okay, I'm now Your Partner in Success Radio is a free business podcast with host Denise Griffiths. It's all about great stories, conversation and context to help you move your business and life forward with actionable tips and advice from her guest experts. To listen and subscribe, just find us on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you consume your podcasts. Oh. Can you hear me?
1: Good morning and welcome to your Partner in Success Radio. This is a show where top performers share their secrets to help you achieve your personal and professional goals. And I'm your host, Denise Griffiths, and together with my truly incredible guests, we bring you inspiring and actionable insights to take your life and your business to the next level. This podcast, thank you to my guests, is ranked in the top 2% globally, and it really is a must listen. So let's dive in. So in this very special episode, I am absolutely thrilled to welcome back a very dear friend of mine, Ken Atchity. For those who have been following our podcast, you know that Ken is not just a professional story merchant, but a true master of the craft. And over the years, he has generously shared his vast knowledge, insights, and captivating wisdom to with our listeners with his storytelling prowess. And I'll tell you right now, I'm learning from him. I watch him. I lurk I really do. Ken, I know you you know I lurk. And I'm learning so much about how to craft my stories and the podcast stories. So today, and today is Memorial Day, and I'm so glad he's here. So quickly, Ken's journey in the world of stories has been a remarkable one. And it was only a matter of time before he decided to tell his very own tale. So when the opportunity arose, he thought to himself, Who is better suited to do that than me? And he's talking about writing his own bit, obit. And he set out then to write his new book, My Obit, My Southern Belle, Volume 2. And in this sequel, he he delves deep into his personal narrative, sharing the triumphs, challenges, and pivotal moments that have shaped his truly extraordinary life and career. And from his humble beginnings to his current ventures, which are phenomenal, I'll get him to share a bit of those his storytelling abilities shine brightly as he takes us on a captivating, captivating journey through the pages of his life. So anyway, Ken, welcome. It is so good to have you here. Okay, can you hear me, Ken? We've been having trouble getting you in. So are you on your phone or are you on, on your computer? Because I'm going to well, have I'm, to... I'm log
0: on. On. Yeah, I'm kind of on both. Shall I get off the computer?
1: Yeah, get off of that.
0: Okay, I was on it twice apparently. <laughs> yeah, it's um, Memorial
1: Day. It's true. I'll log I'll you. Oh, there you go. So good morning. I know it's it's good. You sound fine. And thank you for oh, joining good. me on Memorial Day. I really appreciate it.
0: Well, it's my pleasure. Always been a pleasure to join you. So any day of the year except uh, Christmas Eve. Ah, really. <laughs> Not really I'd do it Christmas Eve too I wouldn't
1: I have to give you a hard time So I have got both of your books My Obit, My Southern which I have to tell you You started here in Southwest Louisiana Wound up in California I started in California Wound up in Southwest Louisiana But you know many ways we're twins here
0: Yeah well that's the balance of justice I guess yeah, there it's
1: you the way go. It, works. it is. And, I mean, I love your stories. And, of course, you were born not too far from me down the road. And I have your first book, your daddy's book. That was, let me tell the audience what I'm talking about here. Because what I have in my hand is My Old Bit, My Southern Belle. That's about your mama, your Cajun mother. But the first volume, and I also have that. Thank you for sending those to me. Was my obit, daddy holding me? And there's a hysterical story about that. What was your original title on that book?
0: Oh, I had a title about six feet long that uh, I don't know by heart, but um, it's too complicated to use. Somebody pointed out it wouldn't fit on the spine, and that wouldn't be good for marketing. So uh, we shortened it considerably.
1: Well, I wrote it out. Because I'm still fascinated oh, oh. by it. I'm not sure I can even pronounce some of this, but it started out, I think, as my intensely madcap Lebanese slash Cajun, Jesuit schizoid, terminally narcissistic, food focused East Coast, West Coast, Georgetown, Yale, career changing, cross dressing, runaway, Catholic, Italophile, I'm not sure what that means, paradoxically dramatic, linguistic. Linguistically neurotic, Hollywood academic, ADD, overcompensating, Nisha boring, and I know you've you've explained this one to me. Jocular, serious, opit. What is that one?
0: Mean? Yeah, serious. <laughs> that means you know, half half serious and half joking.
1: Jocular. Okay, I should have figured that one out. Yeah, that wouldn't fit on the spine. It wouldn't. <laughs> so.
0: Yeah, it's embarrassing <laughs> even to hear it. Um, oh, I think uh, it's but, hilarious. Uh, well, good, good. Thank you for having a demented sen- sense of humor. This is as why we're
1: <laughs> This is why we get along so well. Demented is a, it's a good word. I like it. Okay, so tell us, tell you know, for anybody who is not familiar with you on this podcast yet or hasn't found you online, tell us a bit about you before I start peppering you with questions about myobit.
0: Well. Uh, <clears throat> I thought that was all in what you just read, but uh, see, you have to be a little clear when you write English. So what I am in reality is a a former professor who uh, left the most secure job in the world, a tenured professor, to take on the the least secure profession of the world, being a producer or literary manager in Hollywood. And that's what I've done for the last 35 years and uh, totally opposite life from what I used to have. (laughs) <laughs> so I produce movies, television, and uh, we develop books, publish books, take them out for production. Uh, anything to do with books in the in the marketplace of stories, the story marketplace. That's what I do now. And uh, play tennis. Other than that, you know, I cook uh, Cajun food whenever I'm allowed to, and, uh, uh, and and then eat Japanese food the rest of the time because that's what my wife cooks. And she's very good at doing that.
1: I've met your wife. She's lovely. Couple of quick questions. The Meg. Let's talk about The Meg because you mentioned movies. And then I have another question after that.
0: Well, The Meg is, a, the sequel to The Meg is coming out in August, just uh, <clears throat> two months from now. And uh, we're thrilled because the, uh, there's very optimistic projections of how the box office will be. The first one was nearly 600 million worldwide, but they um, they really expect the sequel to pass that by because there's more Chinese in it than there was in the first one. And the Chinese market alone may do something like seven or 800 million. Uh, so we're thrilled about it. And Jason Statham is back and, I think everybody will love it. It's based on the second book in Steve's series of books about Megalodon. And uh, The Trench is the name of the second book. And uh, the movie is uh, pretty faithful to that, that book, which I'm happy to see.
1: Ken, what was your journey with this book? I think you were in it to win it from pretty much the beginning.
0: Well, the beginning was 26 years ago if you can believe it. I know.
1: That. You told me I'm still yeah, shocked yeah. over that.
0: Yeah, that's how long it took that movie to get to the screen and I was uh, the one who discovered it. Uh there's a book uh, c- coming out shortly called Steve Elton Legacy and it's it it's about the history of his history as a writer including I think 8 or 9 New York Times bestsellers and uh, the history began with uh, 48 48 other uh, managers and agents turning his books down until he got to me and uh, I saw the potential in it and worked with him to revise it and took it to market and then auctioned it for a couple of million dollars to Doubleday and sold it to Disney for a million dollars and that's how it all started years ago.
1: And, you know, I remember when we had some of our original conversations and listen to our audience and go find them all. They're fascinating. But I was shocked. And as you know, and I know this hurts your feelings every time I say it a bit, but I really am not a movie person and never have been. And it's just once I find one that I like, though I'll watch it over and over and over again over time. It They really have to grab me. So I was not knowing anything about the movie industry or the book industry or how you become an agent. I mean, you have just given me so much information for me to chew on. I had no idea that some of these movies that pop up and all of a sudden you're like, ooh, I need to go see that. You have no idea that it started possibly 30 years ago. This isn't common knowledge, is it?
0: I don't know if it is or not because – my, uh, you know, I, I can't put myself in place of where I don't know anything about it anymore. But um, I had another movie that we did called Angels in the Snow took twenty twenty two 22 years to get to the screen. But, but I also had a movie called Joe Somebody that only took uh, about not even three years. It was, I think, half a year. Uh, so every I always tell my clients that every project has its own clock. The only problem is we can't see it. We just have to keep pushing it until, you know, the alarm goes off. And uh, so it, it's a crazy business because there's so many variables. Um, you're you're juggling hot plates, and uh, the whole idea is not to drop them, but to m- make them uh, make make them serve dinner. Uh, and uh, you've got first pers- money involved, personalities involved, the clock, of course, involved, getting all things together at the same time. Uh, it's complicated.
1: It sounds complicated. I'm actually clutching my stomach just listening to you. <laughs> you. know, When I'm building a website or I'm working with a client, I'm thinking, okay, we've got a couple of years to do this. In a website, we've got basically three months. But if I had to wait and watch and juggle for 20 years, mm, no, I couldn't do it. I don't have the patience for it. Well, I always or tell people uh, the brain power <laughs> for it I, I just don't even know how you do it
0: well it's uh patience is the biggest secret ingredient and I, I used to tell people my patience is my middle name but by now i I tell the patience is my middle name it's also my first name and my last name uh, that's what you need is is patience and persistence and uh, so many things can go wrong I mean this this movie was sold to Disney. Then it was sold to New Line. Finally, it was sold to Warner Brothers. And that's how the lead producer, Bell Avery, got it made finally. But uh, just never giving up. And meanwhile, I told Steve, I don't believe in the waiting room, so we're not waiting for this to get made. Let's see what else we can do in the meantime. And in the meantime, he went ahead and wrote, I think, a total of 18 books at this point. Uh, most of which were bestsellers. and uh you know when the finally came, it was not the the huge event that you know he thought it would be at the beginning because he'd been waiting so long and or he was so involved with other books by not waiting but doing something while you wait
1: and that's great advice i mean you you know, and the the author knows they've got something fabulous, and it's going to happen. But they can't just sit and wait. They have to be busy doing and creating other things. And I would yeah, imagine yeah. that that's very difficult. But 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 I got to why I, mean, I can hear the whining in my head. Why why isn't this happening <laughs> right now?
0: Well, because you're you're having the wrong conversation when you do, when you whine like that. Because nobody cares about people whining. They only care about people doing things. So do things. You know. Don't don't put your fate in the hands of some far-off studio, hoping it'll all come together, and st- do what you can control, which is writing the next book, writing the next screenplay, doing the next thing you do. And, and uh, I wanted... That's what,
1: go ahead, I'm sorry.
0: I was just going to say, that, that's what I what I do with The Waiting Room, is uh, work on other things.
1: Well, and that makes sense. I mean, just because we can see it first and fully grown in our own head doesn't mean that everybody around us is going to play in the sandbox with us. There are too many people involved, too many things, and too many issues involved. It's going to happen when it happens.
0: Yeah, exactly. When In Hollywood, when they say, I'll get back to you, they don't mention it, although it may take 20 years. <laughs> oh, that's,
1: <laughs> yeah, that's always you never that's know. So much shocking to me. That that's. But, you know, once you explain it to me, again, I get it, but the first time we talked about this, I was genuinely shocked. I really was. But
0: well, I'm, I'm, sorry you know, I'm sorry to be the the bearer of rude tidings, but th- that's <laughs> just the way that you've got to have persistence. You can't, you know, if you come into this business with a deadline, like, oh, I'll try this for five years, and if it doesn't work, I'll go back to my bank job. Mm. That doesn't work. You have to, you, you can't put a deadline on. A Hollywood career, you just have to say, "I'm gonna, I'm gonna." As Grant said, "I'm gonna hammer it out on this line if it takes all summer." And that's you, that, you've got to have that attitude.
1: And that makes sense. So, what I wanted to ask you before we go into the book, the new book, you do a lot. I mean, you started out, I think, as an agent, is that right? And then now you're you're publishing books. And tell us why you're publishing <laughs> books, because I remember the story, but.
0: Yeah, I started out as a producer, and then I segued into being a literary manager as well to give me more to do in the waiting room. And then uh, we started publishing books about 10 years ago because uh, we still sell books to New York, but in order to sell books to traditional publishers anymore, the the author has to be a national name. Um, They're just... The, all, what happened in the last ten years is all the big publishers, of which there used to be forty-eight, are now four. Uh, were Ooh, acquired. I thought it was
1: four. five. I had five. Well, in it head. might
0: be. Yeah, five, four, or five, depending on how you count them. One of them, one of the the the, the four, one of the five recently merged with, you know, another one. So, okay. so it's four. But um, what happened is they were all acquired by international conglomerates. And and the the rules changed. Instead of accepting books because they thought they were wonderful books, which is the old rule, they started accepting books only because the author had what they call a platform, which means that they have a mailing list of a million or more, and uh, you know, or people who know them, visibility all over the country. Um, so, I, that was working for me because I, I already built a, a second career as somebody t- who sold books to Hollywood and suddenly it was harder and harder to, to get my clients books published because they weren't all, you know, Kennedy related or uh Dracula related like and 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 shark related the way, you know, these some of my biggest books were or governor of a state, we we published just even tourist books and they were bestsellers. But suddenly uh the great books that weren't you know, weren't household names Uh, They weren't buying them anymore because they weren't allowed to by their owners. (laughs) So I I thought about it after after a year of getting depressed about it. And I thought there's only one way out. I got to start my own publishing uh, firm to have books in my hand when I go to lunch and go to meetings. And and that's what I did. And at this point we've published over, God, I don't know, 300 books, uh, under story merchant books. And that gave me books to take and, like Gambino, which is one of our movies that's in casting right now, was based on a book that we published and developed. And uh, it, it was—I uh, did it out of necessity. My goal with all my companies is to serve the needs of, of writers, storytellers who need a marketplace. And we pride ourselves on taking storytellers to the story marketplace and, and as many marketplaces as we can. And publishing is one of them. And of course, if we then sell the book uh, to Hollywood, then they will sell more books. So that's kind of how it all evolved through, you know, through pain and, and grief. But it happened.
1: But you're here. I mean, you're here now, and people don't have to depend on, you know, waiting for one of the four houses to say, Oh, yeah, we'll talk with you a little bit. You know, get on our calendar. You're here. You're here now.
0: Yeah, exactly. I mean, I just took the bull by the horns, as they say, and, you know, decided I had to do it that way. I I knew everything about publishing because I'd been involved in publishing even during my 20 years as a professor. And uh, so we have books that look like books, and they talk like books, and, you know, they end up being uh, in the hands of readers in Hollywood and they don't care whether it was published by story merchant books or by random house it just doesn't mean that much to them what matters is that they are really good books and dramatic and able to uh to serve the needs of audiences
1: exactly and as you know i'm a voracious reader voracious reader i'll read the yep. back of a yep. cereal bottle a cereal box the other day i was reading the back of a um tabasco bottle Vasco's right down the street from me, but I still learned something new. And I was reading that label, but let's talk. <laughs> <laughs> so seriously did. Let's talk about your life in Southwest Louisiana. I mean, you were, you kind of bounced around Cecilia, Brobridge. Again, all of these are right down the road from me. Lafayette, Eunice, Iota, Basile. Tell us about that.
0: Yeah. <clears throat> well, it was a magical part of my life and, uh, I spent every summer, uh, you know, in a rice field, basically uh, working with my uncle and my cousins who were in the rice rice business. They had twelve hundred acres of land, you know, within spitting distance of where you are, and uh, we had to walk through the fields bare feet, uh, taking out what are <coughs> coffee plants? They're, they were called their coffee weeds. Uh, huge plants that grew in a rice field that just choked up the you know that would choke up the combine when the same came so we had to go and pull them out and uh we had had to keep our eyes in the back of our head just to to keep coach whip snakes away from us because they were deadly and uh, also they traveled in pairs so if one of them didn't get you the other one might uh and we had to we, we went out on the field like it Five a m in the summertime when the when the sun rose and then uh, had to get out at nine before because it was too hot to to stay out there until later in the afternoon before like two hours before sunset we'd be out there again, and then during the day we'd you know pick blackberries, go fishing, go hunting, do all things that kids love to do, and that was my my life and Mixed through all of it was storytelling. My uncles and cousins were just inveterate storytellers. They they just loved telling stories, jokes, uh, keeping everybody together by, you know, swapping tales. And uh, I, I started noticing that some of them knew what they were doing as storytellers, and some of them were the worst. And you knew they were the worst if everyone suddenly deserted the front porch the minute they started telling a story. <laughs> <laughs> and and that, 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 that taught me to look for what made a good story, what did make a good story.
1: Um, and, you know, that's not something you probably picked up consciously. It was probably something that just became part of the fabric of your life, and you started using that as you grew older and started your own businesses and just took what you had learned natively.
0: Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's, that's what happened I, I prided myself uh, on telling stories well um, and I didn't even realize it was there was actually a profession behind that 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 it was you know that you could actually make money telling stories and I when I left the academic world where I've been analyzing stories as a professor of comparative literature um, I, and went into the story you know the story world making some movies that were I had an idea and we turned them into 16 movies my first project and, but I realized that stories were dead serious because there were these people called trackers. And, and from Louisiana, the only kind of tracking I understood was with bloodhounds and, you know, beagles and uh, the Catahoula hounds, people like that. I mean, th- dogs are like that. Those were trackers to me. But uh, I get a call, started getting calls once a week from somebody who said that they wanted to know, who controls the rights to this book or that book. And uh, I had answered their questions and found out that if they worked for a studio. They would never tell me which, which studio. And uh, then I learned that their profession was called tracking and their whole life was spent tracking the rights to stories, finding out who controlled the story rights. And uh, so their clients could try to buy the stories. And I thought, wow, if there's that much, business behind stories that they have trackers they pay a fortune to. This is truly the world of ideas. Uh, Unlike the academic world, which had always been called the world of ideas. It was a world of ideas, but not million dollar ideas. And uh, that got me all the more excited and made me realize how applicable all my storytelling from Louisiana was, what was going to be.
1: And You're right. I mean, here, this is Cajun country, Cajun. They're big, big, big storytellers. Like when I first came here, and I've been here a good bit of my life, but I remember asking my husband at the time, he's no longer my husband, he's actually gone, but I remember asking him, what language are they speaking? And he said, English. I said, oh, no, that is not English. It was. But man, I couldn't understand. <laughs> it's a very yeah, thick, I know. Tick, tick accent. It's a very thick accent. But oh, do you yeah, my like... I, Go ahead.
0: I was going to say my grandmother and my aunts all spoke French, you know, Cajun French. French. Cajun um, French. Um, and, right. they, and, and they did. There was English spoken too, but uh, sometimes people couldn't tell the difference between French right. and English.
1: You can't. And, you know, I've been in places. I used to work a lot with Festival International in Louisiana. I was a volunteer there for years. And I remember many, many times being in a room with people who spoke French, Parisian French, Quebec French, you know, because it was a French French festival. And Cajun people would be trying to speak to the French people, and I would, need no French at all, really, Interpreting—that's yeah. not what they said. I think I think this is what's going on here. It was yeah, crazy.
0: it was funny. It's funny because fun. it, the, the Cajuns can f- understand French from you know Paris, uh, but they're not the other way around. And, uh, no. and I found out, you know as a professor, I found out that the reason for that is that the this French spoken by the Cajuns in Louisiana is closer to uh, to Renaissance French, to 16th century French. Than modern french is um it, it, because it didn't I evolve didn't know that. yeah i mean it yeah. d- it didn't evolve to the same extent modern French did uh, because it was kind of an little island of uh you know its own little island in louisiana, and uh it wasn't until i think in nineteen twenty nine the u s government Said it was illegal to, or the, yeah, some government said it was illegal to speak French in Louisiana, and everyone had to speak, you know, stop speaking French and speak English. My mother went through that, and uh, it was kind of shocking. And and then a, a company called CodoFie, which is the society right. to right. to, re, to right. restore French in Louisiana, started trying to reverse the trend before French, you know, Cajun French completely died out. And thank God it think it survives because you know plenty of people still speaking cajun down there
1: it's cajun immersion now but there are still a few people who have not passed yet who cannot speak english
0: they're yeah, born and raised
1: here but they never really learned how to speak english they could understand it they just wouldn't speak yeah, it yeah.
0: my grandmother was like that she couldn't speak it but you know her her kids could. Um, of course, they had to because they were in the school and, and it was you couldn't uh, go to school in French anymore. Uh, but she, you know, she kept her French. And I remember she taught me all my prayers in French. And, uh, you know, we we play bourree in French. <laughs> every, 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 You know, people gossiped in the kitchen in French. And right. I learned the best recipes in French. And it's an unforgettable part of my life.
1: I know some great cuss words in French. I can't. I can't say them. (laughs) Yeah, they sound so pretty. They're horrible if you translate them into English. (gasps) Don't ever say (laughs) that. But they, you know, French is always prettier than English, I think. But you know what? We're talking about your roots here, and we're talking about rice. And you probably, you may know this, but the rice fields are long gone. I think the rice mills have been shut down some time back. But it used to be nothing but rice. You know, 'Cause this where I How live I it's, you know, was a you know, it was old plantations that were in you know, broken up into farms. There was rice everywhere. Then when rice was no longer wanted, then it became cornfields. You know, Your then it became beans. soybeans, soybean fields and then corn. Now I'm not even sure what the heck it right now it's houses. Every time I leave my house I'm finding new houses popping up. It makes me sad. It really does.
0: Yeah. I mean, we need housing, but come on. Yeah, I know. And, and we needed, we needed a, a world that was in touch with nature and with, and, you know, the cycle of the seasons and, you know, when, when you kill hogs and when you kill beef and when, how you share all that around. I mean, it was an amazing culture that I wrote about in another book, Cajun household wisdom, but, um, it, those days are, there's still vestiges of them, like the Crawfish Festival and Brogue right. And, and, right. But uh, it, it isn't like it used to be.
1: It's not. And where I live, and this was all, you know, it was nothing but ground. In fact, when I bought my house, I bought it the week after Hurricane Katrina. And there was no back fence. It was all field back there. And there were, you know, these gorgeous oak trees. And I'm probably going to weep a little bit telling this story, but all of a sudden, they started getting, you know, the, the fields were being mowed down, and I realized I was going to have to actually fence it, but I didn't want to, because I could see the sunset. It was beautiful out there. And then all of a sudden, roads started getting kind of carved into the dirt, and the last beautiful, beautiful mature oak tree got ripped out of the ground. Ken, it screamed. I could hear no. the trees screaming. I stood in my backyard and I wept.
0: Oh, my God. What a terrible scene. But uh, I my, I understand it. You know, I, the, between the hurricanes and modern civilization, the oil companies, I remember mm-hmm. being shocked to go into the bayous where I used to fish and see a pipeline running right through the whole place and, uh, you know, oil slicks here and there. And jeez. It's, I don't know what happened, but,
1: you know, know, fortunately,
0: there, there are a few parts of Louisiana that are still okay, but uh, barely, they're barely holding on.
1: Look, I watch it all the time, and, and I'm kind of joking about this, but not really. On top of, you know, me being an introvert, I am also severely directionally impaired. I mean severely and directionally impaired. My dentist office has to lead me to the front door just so I can pay my bill and get to my car. I'm not kidding. And I fight with my, my NASSIST, system. she'll tell me to turn left. I'll say, you're not the boss of me, and off I go. Here's the thing. When all of this started happening, I had just found my way to my, my favorite grocery store in Youngsville. Somebody moved the horse trailer. I could not find my street to get to a road oh. rather to get to the darn grocery
0: store. I mean, and that was uh, my
1: first indication that things were changing a little bit too fast for me.
0: Yeah, it's funny. You know, you you think that if a country uh, a country is as flat as Louisiana, it would be easy to find your (laughs) way you Nope. It's just the opposite. You know, here in California, I can see the mountains out of two windows, so I always know what direction is north and what direction is east. And I remember getting lost in Louisiana just on those flat country roads and. You know, everybody, all the direction has zoo. It's a big curve, you know, because a the curve, they're not yeah, going to take not. that away. But mm-hmm. they they might take away anything else. <laughs> they took away my trailer.
1: And, you know, we, you know, this is, uh, there's a lot of waterways here. Lafayette in particular is a river town. We've got bayous. We've got, you know, we've got water everywhere. And I am convinced, I think a lot of my Cajun friends are convinced that they just paved wherever the cows. You know, made a path and they just paved that. Seriously, because they really? don't make sense. Yeah. <laughs> they do not make sense. You're like, what the heck? Well, I'm in the wrong town. I do that a lot
0: still. Yeah. Well, it's uh, you know, the primary purpose of the roads and everything else has changed, and that's that's what's going on. It's that it's being reshaped. I remember being shocked that LSU moved to uh you know opened a campus in Eunice, my hometown. And uh, now Eunice is no longer the little town of 5,000. It was when I was born. It's God, it's, it's mushroomed.
1: It's That's cause, happening cause everywhere.
0: Cause yeah, it really is. Yeah.
1: You know, Lafayette is basically, you know, we've got New Orleans and we've got Shreveport, bigger towns, New Orleans, Shreveport, Bat Rouge, and then Lafayette. Ray I don't Lake Charles, we've only got about five good-sized towns, and Lafayette is just spreading all over the place. It's, it's insane. I mean, if there's yeah, any piece of ground out. that people are going to, I need to build a house because I need to commute.
0: Yeah, yeah. Just the idea of commuting is hilarious. You know, to <laughs> fly to southern Louisiana, it's uh, that wasn't a word we used back then.
1: I know. My commute is about three minutes. By the time I get from the kitchen, trip over five cats, and then make it in here, it's three minutes. If I don't fall on my face, that's, <laughs> it. that's my commute. <clears throat> Listen, yeah,
0: let's that's, talk that's about... commute I, I can relate yeah, to.
1: <laughs> that's about the only... I'm just not... Seriously, I don't like to be out and about anymore. I don't know, partly because I do get lost, but I don't need to. I mean, as we're saying, things have changed. I can order my groceries, and I do. I ordered my car online. I bought my house online. I really don't need to commute anywhere. But I wanted to ask you, Ken, we've talked about rice before. You talk about it in the book. What does rice mean to you?
0: Well, I mean, I can't imagine uh, a meal without rice. Fortunately, I married a Japanese lady who, you know, has the same exact feeling about rice. In Japanese, the word gohan means two things. It means food and it means rice. And... uh, I can totally relate to that. It's funny because my mother married a, a guy from Kansas City, and he thought rice was poor people's food and, and preferred potatoes. So every time we had roast, which, you know, she loved to make and I we all loved to eat, she would say it was roast and rice and potatoes and gravy, not roast and rice and gravy <laughs> the way it is in Louisiana. We had that extra thing. I always thought it was strange when I got to be an adult that we were the only family that ate rice and potatoes and it was to please my father because he didn't want to eat rice <laughs> but to me rice is, uh, you know, even for breakfast, you know, rice is essential to enjoying a meal. It, yeah. I, it's a staple. I, I, I took my mother to uh, Venice in Italy years ago and uh, I was really interested to see how she was going to react to Italian food especially my favorite dish which was called uh, <clears throat> Risotto Nero, which, you know, black risotto. And it was made with squid ink. So I yeah. ordered it for her at a restaurant. I didn't tell her what it was made of. I just ordered it for her. And she started eating it. I said, well, mom, what do you think? And she goes, I love it. It's, rice and, you know, it's rice and gravy. <laughs> I thought that was the funniest reaction to risotto Nero that i'd ever heard but you know she's not wrong
1: sense. Yeah, she wasn't wrong
0: when i was right here
1: you know i i was a potato girl california potatoes you don't eat a whole lot of rice and even there it's instant rice which is not rice you might as well lick the box that's all the nutrients you're, right. you're going to get right. it's not rice trust me on this and then of course everything switched to rice and like you i it's in every meal i mean it's always in something gumbo, coffee, it's going to be in something, but rice is, it, oh, you're talking about rice and potatoes, and I almost lost my train of thought. I have come across people here, and this shocked me, maybe you just explained it, but I have come across people, because I make a heck of a gumbo, it's delicious, and I'll have people say, or they're coming, are you going to make potato salad too? Like, no, I'm making gumbo and, and rice. Oh, but I like potato salad in my, my gumbo. And I just gag, but I make the potato salad.
0: Yeah, I know. That that's, that came along because of this shift in culture. Because when I was a kid, we did not eat potato salad with you know with gumbo or with anything. Oh, uh, no. I still won't. Uh, yeah. But, I mean, it's, it's funny. I know every time I go down there now, I notice that potato salad is everywhere to be seen. And it's almost like people are afraid to trade of rice they don't understand it anymore but uh, well, I
1: haven't but, uh, noticed that but I do know I made potato salad yesterday at Memorial you know, Day gathering here and I always make potato salad I don't like the stuff to be honest with you but everybody yeah, that comes yeah. here I always say bring a container you're taking this home with you because I won't eat it but they love it and some of the people that were here do add it to their gumbo I just
0: avert my eyes I can't watch yeah I, I cannot even imagine that, actually adding it to a gumbo. That's nuts.
1: Well, it's, you know, yeah, it's, and like, you ought to see it once it's mixed. It's like, oh, now it just looks yeah. like soup. It really does.
0: <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. It looks like jambalaya, which not my favorite.
1: No, I don't like anything with a, a tomato gravy at all. Okay, so your father was an accountant, so... What did you learn from him and then how do you juxtapose what you learned from him and with your mom to get where you are now because your mom was a country nurse
0: Yeah she was uh she was uh, you know worked in the fields until she got old enough to go to nursing school at Charity Hospital in New Orleans and uh so my father what I learned from him as an accountant is how to how to keep a business going how to keep track of you know where the money is. And uh I couldn't have done it without him because most people in Hollywood don't have, they have a creative brain or they have a business brain. They don't have a combination. But my mother was the other side of it. She was the one who encouraged me to tell stories and to work with stories and uh and to go for it, basically, to do whatever I thought I could do. You know, somebody else can do it. You can do it. That was her attitude. And so she basically egged me on. And, uh, one of the stories I tell in this second book is that I, I was in the middle of a, my first huge deal. I was still a professor but for a year, I had been trying to raise the second half of a budget. Uh, I had gotten a, a guarantee from Warner brothers, for the first half. And they said, you've got 12 months to find the other half. And then our half will kick in. And, uh, I, I was, I think, in the month number ten, when I started dreading the fact that I wasn't going to be able to raise this money, and so she knew I was not happy because she could tell from my voice. And I, she said, well, is there anything I can do to help you?" I said, "Well, if you're serious, you could jump on a plane, fly out here, and uh, hang out with me for a week and tell me whether I'm crazy or not." So she said, "Okay," and she did it, and. You know, she spent her days filling the freezer with gumbo and you know shrimp étouffée and all the stuff that I she figured would last me through the long winter. But uh, during the day, she actually sat in my office with me and listened to every conversation with attorneys, with companies, with supposed financiers, with talent. Uh, Sometimes she even listened in on the phone quietly. And at the end of the week, I said, "Well, what do you think, mom?" She goes. Look, here's what I think. I think what you're doing is very, very complicated and very, very difficult. But I think that as long as you can continue doing it, as long as you can stand, you know, the anxiety, you should just continue doing it as long as you can. And I thought that's what I needed to hear. And uh, sure enough, a couple of months later, you know, the other shoe dropped and I got the other half of the money and things went very rapidly after that. And so what she gave me was that drive to go for it. Uh, Whereas my father, you know, gave me be careful, you know, count your money, be wise about that. Um, She gave me the other, the wild side that you have to have in your heart if if you want to even fool around in this story marketplace.
1: Well, it sounds to me, and it has always sounded to me, this is my own personal observation, but your father was very rational, very logical, very kind of set in his ways, and then your mom was intensely creative, whether she knew it or not.
0: So oh, yeah. it sounds she to both, me like you both. got
1: both the best worlds there.
0: Yeah, she, she's always the one who got the biggest laughs when she told jokes, and the bartenders, you know, the, the, and the... The casino players, dealers, they all loved to see her come because she was always entertaining everybody. And she loved to entertain. She was, no matter who it was and what part of the world, she would say, she'd meet a stranger and say, you got to come visit us, you know? And she meant it. So there was often, you know, the guest bedroom was often filled with people uh, that she'd invited in in Chicago or in, you know, uh, Italy, Who'd take her on her word come up to to stay with us?
1: That happens here a lot, by the way. When I first got, when I first started being around Cajun people and understanding them, eventually I could understand what they were saying to me. Me being an introverted Californian to begin with, I was just like, "Oh my God, don't touch me! No hugging! Ah, ca- oh, don't touch me! I don't like it." But after a while, I realized, and people are big huggers. I'm still not, but you know, I don't want to, you know, punch people in the face anymore. But it's not that I ever did, but I would just tense up and go, oh, geez. But people always want you to come by and have a cup of coffee. Well, I don't drink coffee, but thank you. I mean, I was always, you know, I was delighted to be invited. Didn't want to go. And I never really did go, but I thought it was just so nice for them to offer that and mean it and I, i'm still yeah. very touched yeah. by that
0: yeah and they mean it when they say come stay with us they because, do because uh i mean i was uh, probably in my 30s before i realized it wasn't normal to stay with people in different cities right. you know that's right because that, that, that's the way we were raised is everybody we, we always had people visiting and uh they visiting meant the refrigerator was open to them and the, and they were Staying with us in the house. Um, the most fun part of life is always getting up in the morning and sitting at the table and, you know, having breakfast together and coffee for for us. And uh, that that that's unimagin- doesn't happen if you're not staying with people.
1: And you know what? I Again, I've, I'm so fascinated by this culture. I really am. When I first came here, I kept saying, I have to go get me out of here. Hated California. Always did. My mom said she swore that I was born a Southerner. I was just born in the wrong part of the country. She wasn't wrong. But when I first got here, like you said, it's flat. It is so flat here. We don't really see stars in the sky because of the humidity. We have two seasons, hot and hotter in hell. And six months (laughs) of the year is, really, I'm not joking. And six months of the year is hurricane season. So, you know, there were some things that I had to really get used to. But I love observing Cajun people then and now because, in so many ways, they really are just from the earth. I mean, they are just smart. They don't sound it sometimes. And I'll, I'll look at somebody and say, What? <laughs> what do you mean you're traveling today? You said you were going to New Iberia. That's just 18 months. Miles- oh, never mind. <laughs> I had to figure out what they meant by traveling. It was like they were going on an you know, all day, all night trip, they're going 20 miles away. They still say it, but it took me the longest kind of time to figure out what the heck they meant. And you know what else, Kim? There's, and I haven't been there in a number of years, but there's a little diner in Lafayette. It's been around forever and ever. And honestly, there's a table in there that I swear to you is reserved for the old boys club. And you can sit there quietly at another table and listen, and you can detect. Accents from all the little towns around here, Brobridge, new Iberia, new yeah, Iberia. it's yeah. very distinct, um even Vi you can tell where yeah, they're from. Yeah. There is no one accent here
0: yeah, it's a very strange hodgepodge of of accents. It's just uh, music to me, my ears, but um uh, yeah it it's confusing to somebody who doesn't who hasn't hung out down there for a while and gotten used to it um now i don't even hear it
1: anymore now i don't even hear that it's a cajun accent it's just so normal to me but like i said earlier when i first got here it's like what is what what are they saying what is that that's not english and i was serious that is not english yeah it is but it's a very distinct (laughs) accent from town to town from family to family sometimes
0: yeah Well, I hope you go to the Crawfish Festival, you know, every year. Have you been there?
1: I haven't been recently. Um, Probably, well, since the whole COVID thing. Probably time to go back.
0: Yeah, I think that's starting to come back, and you should definitely do that, just to enjoy yourself and get a real dose of the colorful place you're living in.
1: It is colorful, and people will say, oh, it's so beautiful down there, and I'm looking around going, it's flat. <laughs> we people not <laughs> it. I still can't get over how flat it is here, but it is. I mean, the sky even, you know, if you're coming from the western states and you're looking, if you're paying attention and you're driving down the street, you'll realize that you'll see the ground, and then you see a little bit of sky, but even the sky is flat because of the humidity. <laughs> really, yeah. we don't have clouds. Yeah. We we just don't. It's flat. And oftentimes it's not even all that blue. It's kind of grayish blue, again, because of the humidity. But I will say this. We don't wrinkle. We don't dry out <laughs> enough to get wrinkled. So there's that. That's
0: right. Yeah, it's not that harsh California sun that never lets up. Uh, right. But, yeah, it, 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 I think the highest hill in Louisiana is, is about 40 feet high, and it's on the LSU campus, where it's it's actually an Indian mound, but uh, there are no other no other hills to deal with. No, you know.
1: unless you head up for you know, there's a little little hill yeah, up there, yeah. but not it's in this a part up of the country. So, yeah. what are some of the the current trends or the developments in your field, and how are they impacting your work or your industry? What's that's a very long complicated way of saying what's new what's
0: up well the the biggest new thing is the writers guild strike which really shuts down the whole town in terms of buying and selling and making deals uh, until it's resolved and and it's got to be resolved because uh the only way to get attention in hollywood is to you know do something dramatic like a strike and uh you know, it's it's a good thing because we it gives us time to develop and get things ready to go, but it's a bad thing because we can't close the transactions like I just read an agreement this morning I'm supposed to take action on. But the minute I saw it was a WGA-related agreement, I realized we couldn't do a thing with it until the strike is over. But um, the other big thing that's going on, and it's because of the shifting needs of the industry and realities you know like the streaming companies that netflix that have all become so huge and powerful compared to broadcasters and even the motion picture studios is one thing but the other huge threat is artificial intelligence i mean that is a major problem because you can if you're a company and and you own let's say the you know the charlie brown franchise uh and you want to make another season of cartoons for the kids to watch, artificial intelligence can do it for you. Uh, you know, you, you run it through the computer. You say, give me 10 new episodes, uh, and it's got all the music in it already. It's got all the characters in it. It's got all the previous episodes that were made in it. And uh, you push a button, and, you know, 10 minutes later, you've got 12 new episodes. And that's uh, that's got to be dealt with. That is a troubling writer's issue. Do we really want writers to be replaced by computers when it comes to some programming? And that's what's going to happen because you know water always finds its level, and that's what's going to happen. It's going to happen, you know. So that's a lot of the issues, right? No, I
1: was going to ask you: Are there are some of these writers recognizing what what's coming or what's already here, and are they training themselves in AI to? Not do their work for them, but to enhance their work. Uh,
0: you know that that's a good question. I don't. I actually don't think they're needed in the AI scenario. And uh, you know, if you if you, <laughs> if you own the rights to Charlie Brown or something, some other series, um, and you have your you know, you own computers of your own, uh, you know, why do you need a writer? Uh, why do you need to pay a writer? when, you know, you can just pay a technician to push a button. And uh um, you know, kind of the, the kind of blunt, g- grim way to put it. But, um and it's more complicated than that, obviously, but that's what the writers need to be worrying about. And that's what they need to resolve before it gets any worse. You know, it's already so, causing. Um,
1: go ahead. Cause go I ahead. have another question. Well, I was going to ask you, so given all of that, is this really a smart time to have a writer's strike?
0: Well, it's it's now or never. Like, when when would be a smart time? Because it's only no, going to get worse. Yeah. You know, it's only, it's only going to get worse. And uh, it's got to be resolved. And both sides need it resolved because the studios don't want to start changing their way of doing things and spending money without knowing that they can do that. They don't want to be stopped after they've already spent the money and told they can't use this stuff, you know. So it needs to be resolved. And uh, in the meantime, other things can go on. You know, we're casting some movies and moving along in other directions, raising money for films and all those kinds of things. So it's not like there's nothing to do. It's another example of the waiting room. You, While you're waiting, you you got to find something productive to do. So that's what we're all doing.
1: That makes sense. It'll be in- fascinating. I was going to say interesting, but it'll be fascinating to see how this all works out now and in the future, particularly with AI, because we're not going to get away from AI. We might as well oh, learn no. how oh. to operate with it and not be afraid of it. And I'm working with it right now. I wanted to ask you, we've got about ooh, six minutes. Yours is always the quickest 60 minutes. And I'm always sad when I have to <laughs> say goodbye But I wanted to ask you, and I'm going back to your your book, what are some of the core values or principles that guide you in your work and your life, and how do you stay true to them? And specifically, I'm asking about your mom's letters.
0: Well, my mom mom wrote letters to me all my life, basically. But um, they were always filled with inspiration and uh, challenge. You know, her big thing was, if somebody else can do it, you can do it. Uh, so don't let anything tell you you can't do something unless you just can't physically do it. Um, and one thing she, both my father and my mother taught me is that what matters in life is doing. You know, you can talk all you want. You can, you know, you can think all you want. You can feel all you want. But at the end of the day, as Shakespeare said, action is eloquence. like actually getting it done, I've done, I don't know how many movies, maybe 30-something at this point. And and I I don't know how I did it. And and there are a lot of other movies that I haven't made that I wish I could make or wish, you know, are still in the works. But I don't – thinking about it and all that stuff is not what matters. What matters is getting it done. And getting it done on a daily basis is just what can I do now? You know, we've had things that are stalled And suddenly one night I'll wake up in the middle of the night and go, I know what to do. And, you know, the next morning I have a next step that could be taken. And that's what it's all about is, you know, I just read an article in the Producers Guild magazine that that said that a a producer is somebody who gets shit done. Excuse me for the profanity, but that's really what it's about is doing. And I learned that from my mother. My mother – You know, they didn't have a lot of money when I was growing up, so what did she do? Every spring, she painted the whole house herself with nobody's help, just got her tape out, taped all the rooms, chose the paint. You know, she got sophisticated one day and got a pan so she could use the roller, and (laughs) and she just did it herself. And and I think that's probably the biggest lesson is just do it. She used to tell me the story of the little red hen. Do you know that story? I
1: do.
0: Yeah, and that's that was my favorite fairy tale growing up. You know, just do it yourself and uh, don't wait around for somebody else to, to get it done. And that's hard sometimes. It's It looks like it's easier to get help, but sometimes getting help is more trouble than it's worth. And uh, that, that's my, my chief lesson I think I learned from her and my father both.
1: And, see, I, I agree with that in – I think I would phrase it a little bit differently from my perspective is that I I'm pig headed. I want to do it on my own. And you know, I will often just refuse to ask for help. But once I get moving because I think, oh, I can do this on my own. I'm a big girl, I can do this. Eh. Yeah. <laughs> you know yeah. How that goes. Yeah. But then once I get moving and people see what I'm up to, all of a sudden help just appears. They're like, Denise, yeah. what are you doing? Yeah. Can I be of any assistance? You bet but I'm not having to hunt for it or beg for it or depend on it. It shows up when I need it.
0: Yeah, commitment is where it begins. And once you've committed, yeah. all kinds of stuff, you know, rolls to your help.
1: That's exactly right. Ken, it is always lovely speaking with you. And I know this isn't the last time you'll be here because you've got more books in you. I know you do. And honestly, I don't care if it's a book. You can come here any old time you want. <laughs>
0: well, it's great talking to you. It's like sitting on the porch, and that was my favorite thing to do growing up, and it's probably what led me to be doing what I do now. And you're a great person to sit on the porch with.
1: Thank you. I, I Thank you. I really love that. So before I let you go, Ken, tell people where they can find you. And if I've, we've missed anything, because I know we skipped around a little bit, as I want to do, but tell tell the audience anything that you think is important for them to know right now and where they find
0: you? Well, uh, you can find me at storymerchant.com. It's that simple. Just storymerchant.com kind of introduces you to everything I'm doing with links and so on. And uh, you can buy my obit at uh, amazon.com and love it. If you'd buy it and review it and uh, mention uh, Denise, because uh, she's been a huge ally and uh, a delightful fan. And and uh, I love to hear from her. And so I have to keep writing books just so I can come back to the to talk to her on the
1: show. That's right. Which'll, which'll... <laughs> no pressure. Yeah. No pressure yeah. at all. By the way, y'all, when you buy the second book, well, buy them both, really. And I've got the Cajun recipe book. I've got some <laughs> of your books here in my entrepreneurial library. But if you go to – My Obit, My Southern Belle, Crawfish Pie Recipe, page 212. Get it. Seriously, there's nothing better than a crawfish pie. Well, listen, everybody, as we come to the the end of today's episode, sadly, I would like for you to request your valuable feedback. And if you found our insights useful and enjoyed the show, I would truly appreciate it if you could leave us a review and a rating on iTunes. Your feedback helps me grow and inspire more people on their success journeys. So be sure to hit that subscribe button, leave a review, and share your part in Success Radio with your friends and your colleagues. Thank you for tuning in, and I look forward to catching you on the next one. Ken, thank you. Happy Memorial Day.
0: Well, thank you, Denise. Thanks for inviting me, and uh, enjoy the enjoy the weekend.
1: Oh, you know what? As soon as we're done, I'm taking the rest of the day off.
0: Good. Me well. too. <laughs> I'm going to try. Right.
1: <laughs> That's the plan. So
0: I'll talk to you Good. again soon. Again. Take care. Bye-bye. Get your voice heard. If you would like to launch your own far-reaching podcast, contact Denise Griffiths at yourofficeontheweb.com and go to the podcast tab.